Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Our guest today is Beth Moskowitz, who began her very successful career in the world of sports ticketing during the 1994 World Cup, where she helped make it one of the most financially successful World Cups in the tournament's history. She continued to sell tickets to all special events, including the Olympics, the Final Four, and the Super Bowl. In 2001, she co-founded Razorgator, which went on to become the third largest online ticket reselling business in the country. She has parlayed her ticket-selling savvy into her work with Sports Spectacular, a nonprofit that supports Cedar sinai Medical Center to eradicate diabetes and obesity, and has raised more than $30 million for the cause. Beth continues to make her mark in philanthropy and business, where she is an advisor on influencer strategies and a current investor for startups you've probably heard of that include Beyond Meat and Casper Beds. So let's find out how a girl from L.A. hit the cover off the ball in business as we rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Beth Moskowitz. Are you from L.A.? I'm born and raised in L.A. So you lived here your whole life? My whole life. And are you a West Sider? West Sider. I grew up in West L.A. Back in the day, we called it south of the Santa Monica Boulevard, right? So south of the tracks. And uh, my parents were renters in an apartment and kind of like a duplex. And we grew up over at like Greenfield and Santa Monica Boulevard. Are you an only child? Nope, one of three. At, where are you in the, in the uh, one, two, three? Guess. I'm going to guess middle. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What's on either side of you? You have a brother and a I sister? I have an older brother and a younger sister. Yeah. My dad had a heart attack when I was, I think, like 11 um, years old. And my mom became a caregiver for the rest of her life. He would, you know, I had quadruple bypass really early on in. He was young. He was so young. My dad passed away at 67. So he was, he was sick as pretty, most of my life. I remember my dad not being well. So he must have had his heart attack when he was in his 40s, right? Yeah. 39. 39. Yeah. Quadruple bypass? Quadruple bypass. I mean, think about that. That was a long time. It must have been hereditary, right? Some kind of hereditary heart. Yeah. I mean, he he has a condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which... um, is a hereditary condition that that they found out later in his life that he had that really hard to detect, but it's a part it affects your heart and your um, muscle elasticity in your body. So, so, so therefore, your heart is very affected by it because yeah. it's a muscle. Exactly. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. So your mom lived with your dad for almost thirty years after that, taking care of him. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I had a, my younger sister. At the same time, had scoliosis and ended up at like Children's Hospital in one of those beds that would flip around and rotate for six months. My brother and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up. Is your mom alive? Yeah, my mom's great. She's 84. And so your mom has lived 20-some years now since your dad's passed. Um, roughly. He, but he's been gone 15 years. 15 years. Yeah. And how was her health? 
My mom is great. She is wow. great. Yeah. That's a lot to bear as a kid. Yeah. It's a lot. That's a lot. A lot of work on your mom, hard on the family, everything about that. Yeah. My mom is amazing though. And how is your sister now? My sister's good. She's um, She still struggles with back pain and she has the same condition that my dad has. So her health is is a struggle for her. Has she ever been able to have children? She's never been married. Mm-hmm. She's never had kids. Mm-hmm. I wonder if she could have children now. I know that's off topic, but that's a lot to bear. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you grew up here. Grew up here. You lived here. And then what happened? So you you left the house. Did you go? Where'd you go to high school? I went to uni high. You did? So I, my, I went to uni high. I think everybody went to uni high. Right? And I graduated in 1981. And just a fun story is 10 years later, I went back to my high school class reunion and met my husband who had gone to high school with me. We had seen each other at Trader Vic's in Beverly Hills the Christmas before our 10-year reunion. And it was kind of a thing. Like Jews in L.A. would go to Trader Vic's on Christmas Eve. and um, I was at the same place at the same time as you. Right? We may have sat next to each other. Right? And so he, he, you know, he talked to me, but he was living in Boston, working at Deloitte. He didn't, he didn't think much of it. He asked for my phone number and then saw him at the reunion and he said, are you here alone? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, can we sit together? And this month we'll be married twenty five years. Wow. So, yeah. Did you? What were you like in high school? Were you just friends in high school, or did you? We weren't. A- we weren't friends. We we knew of each other, but we weren't friends. Mm-hmm. We just weren't friends. I was, you know, I was, was chubby, and I I was I had a couple friends that I kind of kept to. And <laughs> for our yeah. listeners, let's, let's, let's talk about chubby. how cute you are now. Yeah, thank she's, you. She's foxy. <laughs> super cute, she's foxy great body, dressy. Foxy Pixie. That's right. So what did you do in those 10 years between graduating from high school and the 10-year reunion? What were you up to? Well, I went to I went to San Diego State, and then I started working in advertising. So I was working for an ad agency in Santa Monica. You find the black and orange can in a, in a six-pack, and we'll fly you out to Universal Studios. for. Or I did Budweiser bar nights, karaoke bar nights, and you, you just like a lot of promotion-type work. And then I um, I randomly started dating a guy who was just a kind of a bad dude. His, his name was Mario, right? Kind of says it all. And he was a high roller. Tatted. In, <laughs> a high roller in Vegas. And he, um, super flashy. We, and it was my, like, I grew you have to remember, I grew up with not, you know, like I did not do a lot growing up. And he uh, would take me to Vegas on a Friday night. And he, he was, we'd, flown in on a private plane and limo service and then next thing you know we're sitting in Steve Wynn's office and this is like gold nugget days and ended up meeting Steve's daughters and becoming really good friends with them I know those girls Kevin and Jillian yeah yeah and um loves and um and then through them met he, he the boyfriend went away that was all bad and then but super fun story, actually. First night we go to Vegas. We're sitting in the front row at a show. And Don Rickles walks out on stage and the band is playing. And then all of a sudden you hear this like big thump. And the microphone has been dropped to the floor. And Don Rickles puts his hands up in the air and he's like, oh, my God. And he points to me sitting in the front seat. And he says, you, does your mother know you're here with that mobster? And... <laughs> I thought I was going to die. And he brings me up on stage and spends the next 20 minutes 
just like using me as his prop in this in his oh comedy god. routine. I, I my sweating palms. And I'm like, oh my god. I'm, Were you dressed cute at least? <laughs> probably, but I. <laughs> oh my god, Don Rickles. That's Don like Rickles. That's that was rigorous. It, it was, yeah, it was amazing. But then through, um, did you have it on tape? No, I mean, no, they was, didn't do that is, back in those days. Yeah, I think I was 25. Right, how no, but you, I mean that. Yeah. The, uh, how did your date take being sort of in the middle? Oh, of I think that? he fed off of that kind of stuff. You know, he was like a flashy. He liked the attention yeah, brought to his. For sure. Yeah, for wow. sure. After this breakup, I met my husband, and then the winds had introduced me to Alan, who was running the World Cup, and he said, Come sell my tickets. And my husband said, I, I went home and I was like, What's the World Cup? I didn't even know what it was. You're talking about the soccer football. Yeah, but World in Cup, 1994, right? no one in America knew what the World mm-hmm. Cup I mean, it was soccer wasn't a thing. Right. Right. In, not in America. Not in America. And I had never worked in sports. Mm-hmm. But he said, come sell my World Cup tickets and do hospitality around that. And I was like, okay. But I'll tr- I'll tr-. Michael's like, the World Cup's a big deal. You should, you should do it. And so I started to sell these World Cup tickets. It was all inbound, right? So everybody who wanted to go to the World Cup was calling and I was selling them these premium ticket packages. And you would buy a strip of tickets. Um, and the way it was designed was you'd buy a strip in Los Angeles, you'd buy a strip in New York, you'd buy a strip in Dallas. All these people from different countries were buying them based on where their team was starting out. But what the World Cup didn't anticipate was that people would travel all around the country to see their team. They weren't going to stay in L.A. Right. once their team advanced. But this was before the Internet. There was no mechanism in place to flip tickets. So Alan came to me and he was like – this cannot become a PR nightmare. You need to – you know where all the tickets are because you've sold them. And I was this commissioned employee at the time, right? So I was getting my commission on my tickets. And he says, but this this is not going on the books. You need to go fix this. So I started arbitraging tickets in a small office in my husband's Office space. You probably and didn't even know what an was arbitrage it all phone? was. Right? I didn't even know what it meant to arbitrage. <laughs> and it was all on the phone. It was the phone work, right? Phone work and fax. And for 30 days, I moved the same tickets over and over again. And it was, it was cash and it was just, you know, the Brazilians wanted this, the Saudis wanted that. They'd wire the money, or they'd bring me money, tickets, Federal Express, boom, boom. And it was just – it went on for 30 days and it was amazing. My two biggest clients ended up becoming my business partners and we started a company. They came to me afterwards and it was like, do you want to do you want to come work for us? They were in the ticket business and I said, no, not really. I'm, I'm going to have a baby. And they, um, they said, well, how about partner with us on special events? And I was like – that I would do. And so I had so much access inside the organizing committee. And once an organizing committee finishes with the 1994 World Cup, most of those people then go on to get jobs at the Olympics and work for two years on that. And then they go on to the next World Cup and then the next Olympics. And those people kind of stay within their com- stay within those organizing committees for a long time, just bouncing from one to the next. So you have all these sponsor relationships and you have all of these inside relationships. So we ended up starting to build out this business based on special events and that. And when you say you started to build it out, what was the mechanism with which that happened? Were you searching for events to promote or were they coming to you? No, we would only focus on the big ones. 
So we had we would take a position in the market. We would go in and become the official partner of that organizing committee. Did that cost you money to do that, or yeah. did you just you, so yeah. you you bought the right to you have that right block of that. tickets? Yeah, and they sold them to you for face value, and then or well, whatever you paid that premium, so you paid your premium to have the rights to that, mm-hmm. and then you paid for those tickets at face value. This was early in the business of doing that. I mean, oh, you yeah, were talking yeah, yeah. about 20, 30, almost and, 30 years and ago. And our company was doing, you know, concerts, theater, and sporting events. So I was working primarily on sports. And we had, you know, we had what we called own inventory. So we'd own this inventory, but then we'd also sell on inventory we didn't have. And find ways to get it whether back in the day that was taking out ads in the newspaper and and yeah. buying them from people it's like a matching marketplace yeah. that you created using all different kinds of media to get the word out exactly before the internet before but you were internet. still early in this is early when when you were doing this this wasn't as it, as it is today oh which God, is no, no, much no, no. more sophisticated <laughs> yeah so you guys were pioneering an industry oh that, no we we did pioneer this industry we we, we created an online ex- we had a uh system called just tickets.com that was tickets now that was just for the brokers to use and all the brokers could populate this i think it was like a dos operating system at the time (laughs) filemaker pro (laughs) yeah exactly that they could populate their inventory on so like if you were barry's tickets or you were vip tickets you kind of knew what other brokers had and so if you had a client you could call up that broker and say hey can i buy these tickets from you and then you would sell them to your client. So it was like transparency. You were bringing transparency to the broker community about what was available out there. Kind of. It's not really that transparent of an industry. (laughs) No, I know it's not. But like for them, it was. It was sort of the ability to say, oh, this person has this inventory. Previously, it was held in between their ears. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, this was still, you know, tickets were cardboard, right? Mm -hmm. So they, you learned pretty quickly that they were perishable. Right. And you had to know at what moment you were ready to sell them and what your price was for them. And so getting your customers and knowing what they'd pay was everything. Mm -hmm. So this has to have been, if I understand what you're saying correctly, you were pioneering and developing a business that had no prior track record. So you had to figure out how to do that. And then you also had to learn quickly the law of supply and demand. Yes. And knew when to fold them and when to hold them. I had two business partners that were experienced had been around the ticket business, really, the ticket business really was like hustlers, right? It was. It was hustlers. It was and, hand-to-hand street and, level kind and of stuff, And that too. was the reputation of the ticket business forever. So you either were ticket master and you, you were the house, essentially, or you were a hustler on the streets and they called them scalpers or whatever. Mm-hmm. So my partners had been the biggest hustlers out there. That were in the industry. So they knew tickets better than anyone I had. I mean, they touch tickets differently than people touch tickets. And today you don't even touch a ticket, right? You just show your phone. But these guys were really smart about the industry and controlling the marketplace in the secondary marketplace. What's the business model though? So, you, they- so there was two, two business models. There was owned inventory and then we, what went on to be exchange inventory. So, right? so then they're, they're competing industries really because if you have an exchange – right? That's supposed to be a fair marketplace. StubHub, for example, right? You go online, you see the inventory, you pay a percentage on the tickets there. It's blind. You don't know who's, whose inventory it actually is. That's an exchange. 
if I own both the exchange and the inventory, then my inventory I'm going to populate in that exchange and I can control the pricing on it, right? Because I can make mine a little bit cheaper than anybody else's. I can affect that marketplace by pricing it however I want. And you also have the issue that you have to learn how to deal with, which is the spoiled milk. If you're getting to the day before the event, you still have inventory, then you have to figure out how to get rid of that inventory. There are lots of dirty little secrets in the ticket business. Those scalpers you see out on the streets are likely being given the inventory by these ticket brokers or entities that have those tickets and go out there and those guys are making a vig on those tickets that they're putting into the, onto the streets. What so. percentage of the tickets today are controlled by resellers? Well, it's, or does it vary by industry? The industry's evolved so much that now the promoters, we'll call them promoters, so whether it's the the Dodgers, the Giants, the Olympics, the NCAA, they're all participating in this secondary market. So if Prime Sport were to partner with the NCAA on the Final Four now, they would get 70% of the revenue that Prime Sport is making versus when Prime Sport would just pay them a licensing fee to have access or a the model has changed dramatically because mm-hmm. nobody wants to leave money on the table. And it's much harder to control the industry now because you've got so much more access, mm-hmm. right? We didn't, people didn't have access before. What has happened in that industry since it went paperless? There's a lot more action and a lot less margin on the, on the tickets. It all, and it's also it's instantaneous, right? So if you get tickets and you put them up and they're sold, that transaction from the beginning to the middle of it, you know, putting them out there to the close is seconds or minutes or whatever. Oh. And then you're, you get paid instantly, right? So the money gets dumped into the accounts immediately upon the close of that transaction, right? Well, I think that there's two things that have changed. One, everyone's become a ticket broker, right? So you have your season tickets, they're online, you don't need a middleman to sell your tickets anymore. Versus if you were a season ticket holder and you wanted to get rid of 10 of your seats for the year, you could just call up the local ticket broker office and say, hey, I'll sell you these right now. Mm -hmm. He would buy them, have your inventory, and then he'd resell them when he thought the peak of the market was. I have like such a basic mother-in-law question. (laughs) What's the best way to buy a ticket? Like if you were going to buy a ticket to the final four in Indianapolis, Mm -hmm. who would you buy it from? When would you buy it and why? So I think that it would, it, it depends on who you are, right? So if you are a fan and you're going to see your team play, then you're going to enter the lottery with your school and they have an allotment of tickets and you're going to hope to get one that way. If you are a corporation, you're going to buy it in advance from Prime Sport and you're going to have a package that you're going to... With hospitality. With hospitality and everything Mm -hmm. else. Final Four is different because you either are a fan or you're a corporate guest. Yeah. You know, it's, so it's it, one of those two ways. And then if you're just a last minute, I, I got to go and go on StubHub or one of the exchanges mm-hmm. and see right. what you can find. Right. And if you're a risk taker, you'll show up at the venue and you'll find somebody on the street and you'll say, hey, here's 100 bucks. I'll take that ticket right, from right, you. Right. <laughs> so the ticket so, prices uh, – uh, uh, this is so – I don't know enough about this to know that I'm asking you a good question. Do they lose value the closer you get to the event or do they gain value the closer you get to the event or does it depend on the event? Depends on the event. It depends. There's so many factors that go into all of this. Who's like, playing? I mean, I'm talking it's sports. It's like TV ratings for a sporting event for too sure, or exactly sure. the well, same way. I mean, you're right. 
if you have if you have Cleveland versus Golden State playing, it's different than if you have Oklahoma City and Toronto playing in a in a you know they're they're just different. The rivalries, the demand. Is there any Game Seven is everything in the World Series? You know, I mean that's that's where people in the business will make all of their money. Do you find it funny that you know this? Like, because you said you weren't into sports. I know. I, I find it so crazy. That you know all yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. In 1998, we were working on the World Cup in France. And I had had two babies. I had two nannies with me. My husband was had his company. He was in L.A. at an apartment on Rue de Passe. And we had ave- offices on Avenue de Versailles. We had become the uh, official ticketing partner of the World Cup. And for four CONCACAF zones, and we had done $30 million in ticket sales leading into this zero in accounts receivable. And we had set up these offices. There were 26 of us working in these offices. Um, and it was still newspaper time, right? So we were taking out ads in France and people were lining up to sell us their tickets because the French people had so many tickets. They didn't care about that they had gotten in their lottery. They just wanted to see their team play. So they were selling us their tickets. We were buying them up. French didn't like this. So they wanted to shut us down from doing business like that. So it made it hard for us to buy up all the inventory we needed to fill our orders that we had. So we Not were, to mention covering your expenses that you've already laid out. Right. But we we were doing really well in terms of buying up tickets through these ads. So got to, we were starting to get a little bit squeezed by the PR of it all. Was there a legal issue or what no, was the – No. I mean just... yes and no because on every ticket it's it says these tickets are non-transferable. You can't resell them, <laughs> blah, 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 right? But that eh. – <laughs> But it's still, you know, the secondary business was always there. We were the official partners. So we had the system in place where people would come to the office to pick up their tickets. And we had $10 million worth of tickets at our office and a million dollars in cash. One night, a few nights before the opening game of the World Cup, we had a robbery at our office. Safe was blown open. All of it was stolen. I get to the office. I call the police. I'm like, oh, my God, we've had a robbery. The police... The police come, start investigating. We, as, my partners and I, as a as a company, decide, here's what we're going to do. We had tickets at the Thomas Cook Bank and we had more cash. We're going to deliver tickets to – and I thought this was really smart. We're going to deliver tickets to as many clients as we can. And our biggest client, which were the Brazilians, we're not going to deliver tickets to. Because if we're going to end up in a lawsuit, we're going to have one as opposed to 100 and something. So mm, – Smart. We start to deliver tickets that we had to our other clients, but the Brazilians are now getting angry. And we're trying to settle with them. We're offering them, you know, five hundred dollars over over what they had paid. They could go out into the marketplace and try and buy other tickets. But this was before there was barcode reissue. So the organizing committee couldn't cancel tickets and help us out. They were afraid that there'd be two sets of tickets in the marketplace. A few days later, Police come to the offices and they arrest me and my two business partners. Handcuffed. There you are with your babies in France. Right. And no husband. And they throw us in jail. I'm literally in a cell with a toilet sunken into the floor. 
Oh, my God. They accused us of staging the robbery because the tickets had become so much more valuable since when we had sold them. They, they thought we staged the robbery and that we were reselling it. And the Brazilians had gone to the police because they were like, they have tickets. They're giving them to other people. They're just not giving them to us. They're trying to get more money out of us. And that wasn't the case. But we spent the next 30 – I ended up getting out of jail you know, 20 hours later. How would you get out? Who got you out? They let me go. They let me go. And then um, my husband was already on a plane to to Paris at that time. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And then, um, but, you know, we we were able to get through it. We just, you know, stayed our course. We delivered to our clients. We worked really hard to make sure that we didn't leave anybody without tickets, even if it was going to be a loss to us. And did they ever show up the tickets that were stolen? No. No. So nobody ever tried to use them? Well, we don't know. Oh. We don't know because there was no tracking of those. Oh, I see. They were cardboard. So, I mean, the seats were full. Somebody was in there. That them. must have been like, well, I would say, one of the scariest things ever to be in a jail in France by yourself. And not speak the language. And not speak yeah. the language. Yeah, for sure. And have your two babies in France without your husband. I was pretty scared. Yeah, that's pretty scary. I was pretty scared. That's um, right up there on the top of the don't want to have that yeah. happen again list. Yeah. But this was this was a great th- – but then the organizing committee, because we had such a good relationship with them, had called me up one day and they said, we have 135 tickets to the Japan-Argentina game. We can sell them to you at face value. And I was like, great. I'll take them. $35 a ticket. I'll never forget this. My partner, Doug, he says, he says call Mikio. And tell him that there's going to – he was with Dentsu at the time. He said, call Mikio and tell him that there's going to be a bidding war on these Japan-Argentina tickets and ask him what he'll pay for them. So I call Mikio. He says, open the bidding at $2,500 a ticket. You paid 35 for them? Mm-hmm. Oh and I was God. like, okay. Oh, wait. Hang up. I wait 10 minutes. I call him back. And I go, somebody else bid 2750 and he goes, right? And he goes, he goes, okay, 2800 cash, but right now. And I was like, okay, hang on. And then we wait a couple minutes. I said, okay, but you have to meet me in the next 30 minutes. And he was like, okay. And literally met me at a cafe. I handed him the tickets. He handed me a, ba- a jam sport backpack <laughs> with cash. With cash. And nobody else was bidding. You made it all up. Yeah. Love that. Was the business a very all-cash kind of a business, like for a while? And what was that like? Yeah. The, you know, the, the history of the ticket business, there's, there is a lot of cash yeah. involved in the ticket business. Is that scary? There's not a lot of research. I don't talk a lot about it. You know, there's right. just not – it's a business where you protect now, your Now, you're still in this business. No. Not really. Mm-mm. Well, now, okay, we're going to talk about that. But I want to go back to um, your personal life for a minute. So you found yourself in this business. You're married to your guy. You have two children. I think they're both girls, correct? Yes. Both daughters? Sydney and Georgia. And so how old are they now? Uh, Sydney is 23 and she's at NYU Law, finished her first year there. And Georgie is a senior at Boulder and she's turning 21 next week. What are they going to do? Well, one's going to be go. Is she going to be a lawyer, or is she going to do something with a law degree? That's she's going to kill me for saying this, but she says it's just. I want to be the next Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Love that. Good for her. Right. Right? That. Listen, Ruth is going to be around for another five years. Maybe she'll have the choice. I mean, it's a good goal. Good goal. And Georgie, I suspect, will go into some sort of um, maybe talent management. 
or or some she's very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Will they both come back to California? I think Sid's going to stay in New York for a little bit if I were guessing. She's interviewing next week for the firm that she'll end up working at, mm-hmm. I guess. And then um Georgie will for sure come back to LA. How is it for you having a empty nest with your girls both gone? Michael and I have been really we we love it. We've been we've been great. You know, our lives are busy. We have a lot of friends. I'm I'm busy all the time. There's our house is an open house for people, so we're in and out. And we just kind of decided that when the kids left, we would just say yes to everything. So we we do a lot, you know. <laughs> we just like then eh, it's been fun. What does he do? Michael had two successful companies. One was called Driver's Side and My Car Page, both of which one he sold to uh, Shell and one he sold to Advanced Auto Parts. And then he's recently, not recently, like four years ago, he jumped on board as the CFO of Mobilize, which is a technology for the cell phone carriers. Mobilize is public, that company, no. right? No. Oh, it's a different one? No, privately held. Okay, so now we have two entrepreneurs, you yes. and him. Yes. Um, you went in the ticket business for a long time, raising children all along the way. And now here we are, and you have made an entire new career for yourself. I don't know if you would call it a career, but you have a huge successful charity life that you do. Well, I did Sports Spectacular for – this was my 24th Sports Spectacular I just did. So it wasn't like now it's new. Sports Spectacular was something that – I loved the people that I was on the board with, and it was just something super fun to be a part of. And we were able to raise money for important causes, and and it, it just became something that people knew me for because I didn't talk about the ticket business. I kept my relationships in the ticket business very quiet. But and it was perfect because you had access and you could really endow Sports Spectacular. Exactly. I had so much access. I could leverage those relationships and, and really benefit, you know, Cedars. Um, it's, been, it's been great. The opportunity to – and I don't, I don't mean this in any way to be uh, disrespectful, but you're massively successful in the fundraising space. So you kind of brush it off but brushed it over. But this is something that you're known for and that you're really, really good at. And it's not easy to raise money. And it's not easy to ask people for money. And yet you do it all the time and you do it better and better and better every year. So talk a little bit about what the skill set is to have done that and to be known for that now. Fundraising is about finding the win for everybody, right? And I always joke that people who support Sports Spectacular aren't supporting it because they even know what the cause is. They're supporting it either for access or – because they're a huge sports fan or because there's something in it for them, right? And most of the people I've used I've used my relationships with athletes to get people to give money so that they could have access to those athletes. And it's been hugely successful for Sports Spectacular and I like to over deliver and I like to not ask people for too much so that they will still take my calls, I like to say. <laughs> is it an annual or a biannual event? Annual. We do a few other smaller things throughout the year just to just to keep the, you know, if opportunity presents itself, but I don't really pursue a ton of other. I worked at ESPN for oh. 10 years. I ran marketing at ESPN through a huge growth period. And what I remember about the event is how beautifully packaged it was. Like it's not just the access. It's like a really wonderful experience. 
I think guest experience is everything. Yeah. Well, but I, I think that I think that when people come into my home, I think about curating a guest list so that when you get there, you know somebody. I'm a big mixer. Like I love connecting people and introducing people and I never try and insert myself in a deal I don't belong in or anything like that. I just love to bring people together and I like to create an atmosphere where people feel like everyone is equally as important mm-hmm. as the as the mm-hmm. next person. What is the trick and the key to the, doing that? Listening to what people want and and hearing that. Yeah, yeah, I can just see when you talk about it, the delight that you take in it too. Like it's your secret sauce for yourself. It it, it is. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. Do you entertain a lot personally? Yeah. When you have part, when you use use the word curate, which is I love that word. It's one of my favorite words. And when you have a dinner party or you set something at your house, when you're thinking about who to invite. Is that foremost in your mind that this person will know this person so that the conversation will be more pleasant and easier going? Is that part of your your pre-planning when you do something like that? Yeah, I like connectivity for people. You know, I want I think that people's lives become fuller and better with the people in it. And I think of people as my friends. I I don't I don't have a lot of attrition in my life, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you have so many, so much to do with your empty nest, right? Yeah. You're just like, okay. Just, I and, and I have, we do this thing at our house that just sort of happened, uh, Bachelor Mondays, where every Monday night I cook dinner and a bunch of friends come over and we watch, it's centered around watching The Bachelor. I'm not sure that we ever watched The Bachelor, but it's, um, yeah. it's just a fun <laughs> night and a lot of our friends just kind of come and hang out. And So when you do, um, as you've, you've done this really, you've worked your whole life while raising your girls. So your girls have watched you and observed you as a person that has done that and had a career your whole life. I know because I, in, in my life, I've also always worked and I raised my four sons during that period of time. Right. And you are uh, amazing, by the way. <laughs> thank you very much. I agree. Yeah, I know my. You're close to my oldest son. Do you know my other sons too, or just Evan? I know Evan best. When I look now and I watch them now that they've grown up and they've gone out into the world, that they are, they've only known me as a working mom. Like that was just you know the way it was. And I designed my life that I started my day at four a.m., but I was done when they came home from school. So I was a working mom, but I was home in the afternoon. So they had sort of a by by uh, a split point of view on what that was like. But I didn't raise girls. I raised boys. And you always, you know, there's always an expectation they're going to be, go from boys to men to careers and so forth and be fathers. Uh, you were right at the time where it started to shift, where it was common for women to have careers, more common for women to have careers. So now you're talking about what your girls are going to do. It sounds to me like they both uh, inherited your career goals, that they're going to have careers in their lives and balance their lives. Theoretically, they get married and have children, but they had you as their role model. You know, I like to think of balance that I've had in my life as, you know, people joke, we ha- I have my Beth rules, you know, drink a lot of water. <laughs> you know, like I never took my kids. To the, my kids rarely went to the doctor. He'll be fine. Drink some water. You know, it was, it was, I just, yeah. and I was never really up <clears throat> in their space because I was always busy with my own thing. But I like to think that when we were, when they were growing up, I never talked on the phone at night with friends or anything like that. I did all my calls during the day. So when you were there, you were present. So I, yeah. And then our house was always, I always wanted our house to be the house where people like to hang out. So the kids had their friends over. Our house was a hub. People were sleeping over. It was a place to go. And my husband and I, this was pre-Uber when our kids were 
you know. Right. It was a big thing for – we like to pick up late night. You know, it, other parents could drive the kids to a party, but I was always the mom that was picking up. So I kind of had a sense of what was going on in their lives. And It's so interesting today. I was pre-Uber also, and I watch – What's going on today with these kids and, you know, Uber rides and in no time they're going to be having driverless cars right. and the things that we were so fearful of. I'm sure you had the same experience of so fearful of them driving home drunk from a party. And, um, you, <laughs> you know, d- you drive at any hour of the night or day to make sure nothing happens. Yeah. And sure. we would tell them, all, I'm sure everyone in this room, you know, would say to your kids, I'm coming to get you. I don't care what time of the night it is. Call me when you're ready and I'll come get you. Right. Or, you know, we'd have a pre-plan on picking you up at midnight or whatever it was. But, you know, getting them through that danger zone when they're at that age and getting them through that right. was so hard. I mean, I was terrified pretty much for seven years on end, <laughs> right. you know. Michael and I had like two things that we wanted for our kids. We wanted them to be happy and we wanted them to be confident. Those were our two kind of standards that we were Competent making. or confident? Confident. Confident. Steve Leader used to say, he's, you know, when you're in school, you're expected to be good at everything. But when you graduate, you get to choose what you want to be good at. And so we thought if they're happy and they're confident, then they can choose to be whatever they want to be and have access anywhere. Clearly, they've grown up in a house where I where relationships are valued, right. you know, so they understand the value of relationships. You know, we, we made our decisions as parents based on our kids as individuals, not as not as this is the supposed to that mm-hmm. they're supposed they're supposed to go to this school. They're supposed, my kids went to different high schools. My you know we started we were of the like founding families that were at Wilshire Boulevard Temple starting Browerman Elementary School. And I sat on the, the board of Browerman Elementary School for 10 years. Actually, one of the things I'm most proud of in my life, which was that we started that school and turned it into a, a school that is got a wait list and yeah. now has an East campus and uh, amazing. And we met some of our closest friends doing that. We, I wouldn't be here with you if it wasn't for that school. We met Brad and Lisa. Right. So I'm parent association president, board chair, Georgie, my younger daughter was in third grade. She gets in the car one day and she says, oh, I just, um, I read, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, today. And I loved that book, Judy Bloom, growing up. And I said, what did you think of the grandma? And she said, oh, I'll tell you later. And in that moment, I knew that Georgie couldn't read. And I went to the school because I know if she could read, she would have talked about the grandmother like my mom because she had such a close relationship with my mom. So I went to the head wow. of school and I was like, we need to test George. Something's not right. And it turned out that Georgie had figured out how to be the boss and memorize things. But she, you know, people thought she was really quiet or shy. She didn't speak up. But if there was a leadership role she could take, she'd pretend to be the teacher in the classroom or whatever. But she was just trying to get through. And in that moment, we knew it wasn't the right school for her. It was going to be too – there were the expectations of her. So we pulled her out of the school that we started and put her at Park Century School, a school for kids with learning differences, so she could grow up in a happy, confident environment. Wow. You know, so it wasn't – There's so many judgments. And what you're saying really is that you let your love and your understanding of her – lead as opposed to any judgments. Oh, absolutely. Jamie, so the first day I took Georgie to Park Century, I was hysterical. I, oh my God, I'm labeling my kid as mm-hmm. the kid with the learning difference. And 
what people are going to think she's weird or but you know what I saw Jamie Lee Curtis in at the school and Jamie Jamie was amazing she was taking the first day of school she was taking the kids on a field trip and she was the mom driving and she said I got her you're going to be fine she took Georgie they went on this field trip and I never looked back it was like these were cool kids. They just learned differently. Mm-hmm. Their brains processed information differently. And just learning that as an adult, because, you know, you, you, people think you learn one way or you process information one way. You don't. And that's what makes everybody so different. But everybody think differently and embrace things differently. Mm-hmm. And um, I learned a lot from Georgie in that. Well, you oh. also – Practice something that you practiced in business, which is really listening. Like you were really listening to your child and you were really also trusting your intuition about what was going on. That's everything. Listen to your gut. It's never wrong. So you altered her path quickly, got her into a school where she was able to be successful. Yeah, we did. Which is huge. And my husband husband was like so on that. Like I was was like, oh my God, we can't pull her out of this school. And he was like, no, we can. We we can. This is going to be good. And She'd make new friends and she'd have – and she's confident. Mm -hmm. She is so confident and so competent and smart and amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You altered her path in a nanosecond. Yeah. You You know, that fierce mom showed up. But that's just it. You know, change is hard. But if if you're open to it and you talk openly, you can learn things and you can find out what's available you know i didn't i grew up i didn't know there was private school you know yeah Yeah, i went to uni i went to westwood elementary school i went to uni there was no i didn't yeah i had kids in my neighborhood were going to harvard westlake or harvard or westlake or crossroads i didn't even know from those schools right it's interesting story my um my third son was born in november I didn't know then what I know now, but if I had to live it over again, I started him in kindergarten when he was four. He turned five in November, but he was so bright and so intellectually superior at that age. Even he still is, but he would, it demonstrated itself early on. <clears throat> and I put him into, into kindergarten, and he had a very tough time in the way that men are because boys work their stuff out on the schoolyard. And they get picked for the baseball team or the basketball team or the soccer team. And when you're the youngest boy in the group, in his case, you tend to be left out. You're the last one picked. There was a whole book written about this by Malcolm Gladwell. Well, I was just going to say, I, yeah. yeah, I listened to it, It's basically guys who are born between January and March are much more likely to be professional athletes and successful uh, scholarship winning athletes because they have the advantage of size and right. maturity. Mm-hmm. And they've been nurtured by their coaches yes. for longer. Yeah, right. and the season works where, yeah. you know, they should have two seasons a year in order to optimize the talent. Right. My husband also went to kindergarten or whatever it is at four. He's born November 2nd. And yeah, David, it's November 15th. Yeah. And he struggled with it. Mm. But with yeah. Sydney, my older daughter, she at Browerman, she ended up, she was in like, because she was too young, was in the developmental kindergarten class. And then... They didn't have enough kids for it. So they moved her into kindergarten and she was four. And, I mean, she was four. Right. And they um, – she ended up staying the course. We never ended up going back to kindergarten a second time and she just kept going. And she went all the way through Harvard, Westlake, Michigan and now NYU Law. She's literally turning 
23. She's not yeah. even 23 yet. I don't know this factually, although I'm sure there's a lot written on this. I think that girls have a tendency to do better in those environments than boys do because boys settle things differently amongst themselves. And right. uh, I always regretted it because my other kids were uh, September, November, and June. So they didn't have that. They were already five when they started. But uh, anyway, it just was an interesting story that you just told. It made me think about the sort of and, and it took a while, you know, to catch up to that till he didn't have that awkwardness of being the littlest kid in the class. It would be so nice if they would come with a book, right? Like, here's the book on how to raise this child. <laughs> Just read it from start to finish. And well, you know what's so funny about that? There's a great book called What French Women Know About Love, Sex, and Marriage. They give this. Have you read it? They give this. They give this great example in the book. In we're a Puritan society, right? So. Everything is about, circling back to supposed to. So you, you buy a cookbook here and there's a beautiful cupcake on the on the outside of the cookbook. And then you go inside, you go make the recipe and you're looking to make it and you want it to look exactly like that cupcake. And yours never looks the same. In French cookbook and French women, they get a cookbook. It says a pinch of this, a little bit of that. There's no pictures. And so you're just experiencing it. And you're following your gut and you're making decisions based on what works for you. And if you think about that just in terms of life and marriage, you know, in this book, they talk about a study that was done in the New York Times about how we get married and we create this checklist, right? Okay, we're going to have a house, the white picket fence, we're going to have two cars, two kids, a dog, your kids are going to go here, we're going to spend Christmas with your family and Thanksgiving with your family. And then we end up being disappointed because none of it's working out exactly the way it's supposed to. So if we spent a little less time on the supposed to's. Mm -hmm. It is an old expression my mother used to say, we make plans and God laughs. Yeah, It's so true. Did they have anything in that book about snoring? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) How do French women deal with that? (laughs) They look the other way. (laughs) That's that's fascinating. I know when you look back on your children and when you're basically done, I am done and you're still in the middle of it. in the middle of it. But when you look back on raising them and you think, well, I could have done that better. I think that a lot of this stuff sets us up to be grandparents, Mm. right? Because you had whatever influence you had from your mom. And then it sets you up so that when I have my grandchildren and I get to raise, you know, be a participant in raising my grandchildren, you know, teaching them to read earlier, you know, whatever we learned that we could have done differently or better when we raised our children, I like to think that we'll amend that and be helpful to the parents of our grandchildren, right, and see if you can't sort of roll that forward. Well, I don't think you appreciate your – I didn't appreciate my mom as much as I do now until I had kids, you know? For sure. Right? <laughs> For sure. I called my father and I said, Dad, I had a boy. His name is Luke. I'm so sorry. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I didn't get it. I didn't understand. Right. All the worry, all that, like the p- permanent vulnerability of being a parent. Right. No. And my parents were amazing. I mean, Michael's parents were amazing too. But my mom, she was so helpful in in those first five years of my kids. Your mom had a tough road to hoe too with this. I mean, my husband. kids were everything to her though as a grandparent. Right. Yeah. I right. mean they were Are they her only grandkids? No, she uh-huh. has four. So now when you look at your life today and you've been so successful as a business person and somebody who's raised funds, what would you say to our listeners about the the messages that you have learned and that you've given yourself and what would you say it forward and tell them to do? Well, understand that no is a complete sentence and that's okay. <laughs> I, I love that. That 
for yourself, right? Yeah. Say no. You can say no. And also, don't worry about what other people think. They are thinking about you a lot less than you think they are. And ask for a seat at the table. If you don't ask, you're never going to have one. So those are kind of... That's very profound. I, I have a. I could use a lesson in the word no. I really could. I find myself saying yes to more than I should say yes to. And then I'm in it. And then I'm going, well, oh, because what am I doing in this? Your word is everything. If you commit to doing something, yeah. you're going to follow through on it. That's, that's your nature, right? It is. Don't put yourself in that position. You're right. you're much better off saying no to something than saying yes and then feeling the pressure of having to deliver something you don't even want to be bothered with. Right. So what's next for you besides doing what you the charity work that you're doing? What's next for you? Thing I think I would say I'm most excited about right now is there's a company called Beyond Meat, which is plant-based protein. And several years, like six, seven years ago, I was fortunate enough to meet the CEO, Ethan Brown. And if you haven't tried the product or know about it. I've had it. I've made it. It's great. It's a game-changing company. It's, It's a company that will change the world forever. And environmentally, health wise, and Ethan has created this product with his with a team of the world's best scientists that is a center of the plate protein, and it's it is so good for you, and it is so good for our environment. Well, and tell what what is exactly the product? There's hamburgers, there's sausages. It's a it's a protein. It tastes like meat, and it looks like meat. And it's like they reversed they reverse engineered meat exactly, and they created something that really has it like has juice in it the way that meat does. It's not your typical veggie burger experience. Texture, taste, everything, everything. If you think about just from an environmental standpoint, you think about it takes a nine-hour shower to make a pound of beef. It takes one-minute shower to make a pound of Beyond Meat. What's it made out of? Plants, pea protein, Wow. beets, coconut oil. Where do you get it? You can buy it in over 20,000 grocery yeah. stores. You can get <laughs> it at home. It's how you get it. Bristol so Farms, it, Ralph's. Bristol, yeah, Bristol Farms, Ralph's, Kroger, uh, any grocery store has Whole Foods. it now. Yeah, Whole Foods. It, it, is, it, is it something that comes fresh or frozen? You get it in the meat section of the grocery store. So if you go into Ralph's and you're looking at the 80-20 burger patties, right next to it you'll see the Beyond Meat patties. It's growing. The company's growing so fast that they're selling out. So don't get frustrated. They're working on production and getting it, getting more product out to the stores faster. It's also in restaurant chains. It's do they know. cook it? Do you cook it like you would cook you a cook hamburger? It just like a hamburger. You can put it on the grill. You can cook it in a pan. You can break it up and put it in pasta. Wow. The sausages are amazing. I'll send you some. You have to try it. I would love to try it, and I would love to tell our listeners how do they – besides going into the supermarket to get it, is it available online? You can't buy it online. You You can buy it through Amazon Prime. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten it that way. Yeah. Beyond Meat. Beyond Meat. M-E-E-T or M-E-A-T? In the grocery section, in the refrigerated meat section of the grocery store. And it's just an incredible company, and I'm excited to be a part of it. We invested in the company, and um, I've been working with them on their influencer marketing. So getting athletes to help think about plant-based protein as their diet instead of meat protein. And investors, you know, there's a lot of really high-profile investors in the company now. And it tastes good. And it tastes amazing. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to get some today. Yeah. Has it changed the way you eat and think about eating and cooking? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that my kids will say I'm a little obsessed, but the, um, 
it's very but, good at this stage of our lives too to, to it, cut back on. You feel good. It's it, there's a movie coming out called Game Changers. James mm-hmm. Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger produced, and they've looked at the diets of athletes um, who have gone plant based. You know, like Con- you know Conor McGregor went up against Nate Diaz in that big UFC fight. Nate Diaz was plant based, and Conor McGregor was eating these massive steaks, and Nate Diaz beat him. He looks at three NFL players. One of them he's given one of them's on a plant based diet, one of them's eating chicken and one of them is eating meat. He takes their blood work and then you see in the you see in the movie that the the blood of the plant based is clear and then the blood of the chicken and the beef is super cloudy. Then he gives them all plant based the next day and all their blood is clear. So it's pretty fascinating to see that how – That is so interesting. Yeah, the health benefits are, are staggering. And, and it's just not sustainable to continue to produce mm-hmm. such That's, waste. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean eating Beyond Meat is better for the environment than driving a, you know, a Tesla. A Tesla. It'll have yeah. more impact. Cool. The yeah. way of the future. So I'm pretty excited about that. I love as that. You can <laughs> I love so besides that, what's next for you? So I've been spending a lot of time doing that and – Living your life. Living my life. Living my life, Yeah. yeah. I know you have a very full and robust life. Yeah, I want to. I want to sneak into your house and come to one of your little gatherings. Come anytime. (laughs) I just feel the happy energy of your life. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Anything that you regret? No. I mean, there have been experiences throughout my life that I've learned major lessons from, but definitely no regrets. It was wonderful to meet you, and it was wonderful. uh, So fun. Love that story. That's fantastic. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Next time, you'll meet Bob Emmer, a homegrown California boy with more than 30 years of entertainment industry experience. He started out as a graduate of UCLA and Loyola Law School. From there, he went on to become Director of Business Affairs for MGMUA Home Video and Senior Vice President at Alive Enterprises. In addition to being creator and executive producer of the late-night music show Rock and Roll Tonight, Bob's early career included developing many music talents in including Teddy Pendergrass, Blondie, and Alice Cooper. He served as executive vice president at Rhino Entertainment for 12 years, where he oversaw business affairs, deal execution, and product oversight for Rhino's record, video, and film divisions. When they were acquired by Warner Music Group, Bob was recruited to serve as senior VP of business affairs for their record labels that include Elektra, Warner Brothers, Atlantic, and Rhino Entertainment. Currently, he is the co-CEO of Shout Factory, a diverse media company devoted to producing, uncovering, preserving, and revitalizing the very best of pop culture specializing in cult classic, horror, and sci-fi films and classic TV series. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with media man Bob Emmer on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 